listener production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. This audio edition is created in conjunction with partners as part of our Market Voice series. Well, we've heard for how long that brands must become media companies in their own right and that low-hanging fruit abounds for marketers hunting new revenue growth from their owned assets. A quick scan of Australia's top 50 websites, for instance, shows there are more businesses than publishers in the index. Telstra, Woolworths, Combank, Zero, ANZ, Australia Post and Bunnings are all in there with significant audiences. And Woolworths and Cartology is an obvious example we're seeing now in retailers moving in on media. NMI3 has got a cracking report coming out on that shortly. But it just isn't about supermarkets. Other big retailers, telcos, banks, financial services and consumer goods companies are piling in on the trend. Think Optus, Telstra, Amex and Kellogg. Now, a leading advisor on how brands leverage and value their own media assets is Sonda, which among a bunch of major projects is working with American Express in 13 international markets to do exactly what we're talking about. Jonathan Hopkins and Angus Fraser saw the macro trends about six years ago and it looks like they were on the money, literally. Sonda's analysis shows the average revenue a large Australian business with physical and digital assets can generate is $82 million. And Sonda estimates it's unlocked about $8 billion in owned media revenues for a portfolio of clients. Yes, I did say $8 billion. Despite the huge opportunities, though, Sonda's founders say there are a few common roadblocks which CMOs, chief growth officers and finance teams should be across. And they've got a stack of really interesting case studies on how to make brands as media work, just like a media company. So welcome, gentlemen. I'm looking forward to this one. Um, to either of you, $8 billion is a lot of money. Um, give us the sort of the post-COVID 2021 update, really, on where brands are at in their attempts to become media companies and why and how is it working. It's still a bit below the radar, I think. Uh, Angus, maybe start with you. Um, your take on where it's where it's at. Yeah, Paul. Look, Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here um, and uh, talking to you today. So, yeah, I think um, out of the pandemic, there's really been one irrefutable fact, and that is that our assumptions of growth just don't hold true anymore. Um, and businesses are really looking for new ways to generate growth or leveraging the growth that they've had over the last 12 months. Um, and our fundamental belief is that fortune really lies within. That businesses um, need to cast an eye inside their business um, and to see what they have. Um, and that they can actually find growth within their organisation and that owned media is just one of those really lucrative areas for them to consider. And yes, it is big, um, but I think, you know, the, one of the things about owned media is that it's fairly easy to dismiss as well. It's a bit like a gestalt, you know, where um, owned media, it's like you can look at it in one dimension um, as a channel. And it's not until you get the insight around the value of that channel that it becomes a whole different picture. And it really becomes an asset. So, um, you know, we one of the important things, I guess, to to flag is just how we define an owned media asset. And it's basically it's a it's a media channel um, that a business controls um, that attracts an audience. You know, and it's that simple. So, a website, an email, a gondola end, a poster in your store, a screen. 
uh, logo on a T-shirt. You know, there are so many of these um, media channels that organizations control and own. And in the connection economy, every medium matters and every medium has value. So that's what we set out to, to do and to provide um, because in our experience, businesses still are really undervaluing these media assets and even in some cases, actually giving it away. Jonathan, so to Angus's point, who is driving um, the, the sort of the owned media plan and strategy inside these organisations? Is it the CMOs, Chief Growth, Finance? Who's doing it? Yeah, it's a bit of a mix. So um, what we found over the years is that all roads tend to lead back to the marketers. Um, the marketer's role, as you know, is changing. We're seeing an emergence of the Chief Growth Officer and CEOs putting more onus on the marketing teams to drive revenue through alternative sources as well as um, drive growth in their core business. Um, but in terms of roles that are, that are involved, it does span a, a broad church. So you look at merchandise teams in, in retailers who for decades have been using owned media as a, as a leverage point. Um, finance teams are very interested in this for obvious reasons because of the high profit margin. You know, you're seeing up to 90% profit margins. Um, commercial directors, if they exist in the business, um, for obvious reasons, again. Um, and also um, the, the boss, the CEO. So um, what we've found is that when it works best is when the CEO um, actually brings the departments um, of the business together um, as one around this common goal of, of leveraging own media more profitably and more in a more sophisticated fashion. That, but that eighty million bucks that you, or the eighty-two million dollars that you sort of the Saunders worked out is sort of the average um, return that that uh, a large company is getting. That's quite significant. So, how big a company do you need to be to extract eighty million dollars in, in in media revenues from your own assets? Yeah, it's a good point. Um, there needs to be an infrastructure there, um, and what we find is it's the more established physical and digital um, businesses, uh, either in grocery, so your Woolworths, Coles and Metcash have been doing this for a long time and leveraging media through their vendors. Your aggregator retailers, so big W's, your Myers, your DJs, your Rebels, your Officeworks, they're the ones who um, are dealing with multiple brands. Um, they have a large store network um, and a big digital footprint as well, which has grown exponentially in the last 12 months. Um, but also the ones that you wouldn't necessarily think of as well. So the telcos um, we work a lot with, they're very good at um, leveraging their owned media through with their handsets um, suppliers. Um, and also loyalty businesses is an emerging area. So a lot of the financial and travel, so I think Velocity, American Express, the big banks, they're all moving into um, an offers model um, which has been pioneered globally by Amex offers, um, whereby they offer um, their customer base relevant offers, um, discounts based on their spending behaviours and promote them through their own media network. So when you get an email, when you get a, see a banner on a website, um, when you get a notification on your app, all of this is media which has a value um, you know, back to the back to the supplier or the partner. Well, there's a big, there's a big long lineup of, of companies and, and, and sectors there, Jonathan. So who who can't do it? So, for instance, can an auto company do it? I guess the three ingredients um, for a successful own media leverage is around having that network of um, media established already. 
So that infrastructure in terms of we have a store network where we can put posters and screens up. We have a website that attracts an audience um, and so on so that they have that media ecosystem. Secondly, they have a strong relationship with their customers. Um, so there's that trust that exists um, and they're constantly talking to them and adding value. And thirdly, there's a proximity to purchase, which is what partners really want. And that's at the pointy end down the funnel in terms of converting, converting um, customers. So who's doing it best in your view? Well, in Australia, I mean, we work with businesses all over the world, but in Australia, I think you have to hold up Cartology as, as the gold standard. Um, you know, they, they're data-led, which is um, one of the big things. Well, just sure for the listener that may not know, but I'm sure they do, but it's a Woolworths um, brand uh, media initiative that they've taken all in-house and really working it hard across their, super, their stores and their digital assets, right? Yeah. That's right, and Cartology um, um, is starting to represent other members of the group as well. So, you know, Countdown in New Zealand, um, Big W, um, and some of the Endeavor, Endeavor group as well. So, yeah, it spans across the group. Um, and like I was mentioning before, the impetus really came from the top. So group CEO Brad Banducci um, came out to market and said that retailers are the new media owners, and he's made a real effort with um, supporting Cartology um, and driving their their data skills, their tech stack. Um, you know, they have the scale, they have the media sales expertise, um, and most importantly of all, um, efficacy. So being able to demonstrate that um, advertising with them through their networks work is a powerful sales tool. You know, partners are going to come back if it works. Um, yes, I want more, please. So um, it's a powerful offer. Um, other businesses, you know, Chemist Warehouse and Coles are also doing it well. They've been doing it well for, for a number of years. And then, you know, in the digital space, you've got the Ebays, the Kogans and the Amazons continue to lead um, and have highly sophisticated, highly profitable models in that space as well. well why, for instance, well, two, I guess there's two questions there is, firstly, you know, you talked about the Woolworth CEO, Brad Banducci, driving this. How, in, in, in the cases and projects you've worked on, how difficult is it to get the CEO over the line? Is, is there resistance there or is it they typically see the upside and go, let's do it? Generally, they see the upside um, and they see that it's highly profitable because they've already invested in the, in the ecosystem. It already, already exists. Um, but there's a delicate balance in terms of legacy systems and legacy processes within the business. So, for example, a merchandise team might have always been doing it a certain way and that there needs to be a, a change that happens internally, culturally, around how um, media is, is going to be leveraged in the future, um, you know, whether it's going to be charged for, whether it's going to be represented as value um, and how the different um, category teams, marketing teams and merchandise teams work together. Yeah, and you mentioned Cartology, and I guess you know I was going to say why uh, why do you put them up as is is doing it the best? They're at the best out at the moment, but in in all that is I guess they've restructured their business to to work around the strategy, right? That's probably a big difference about with what Woolies and Cartology are doing. They've actually restructured to to, to facilitate this whole strategy. Yeah, I, I guess simple way of putting it is that media um, has a bigger seat at the table. Right. Okay. Um, Angus, in terms of the the biggest challenges, what what ends up hitting um, the CMOs, the team that's trying to, to drive this, or or, or slowing down um, a rollout of, of getting the the owned assets together and and uh, and monetizing them? 
What are the key big things that, that block this? Okay, yeah, there's a number of challenges um, around this area. So the first one really is the, I guess, the operational um, side of things because a lot of the businesses we work with, um, they're not you know, a classic media business. They're a bank, an airline, a telco. Um, actually operating like a media um, business is not intrinsic to them. So, and I think that's going back to the the cartology um, example that Jonathan was talking to there. What they've done is essentially created, you know, a really sophisticated media business within the Woolworths empire. So that's a way that you can get around that by bringing in all the media smarts and the people and the tech and everything to um, genuinely act like a media owner. Just on that, Angus, how much do you, it sometimes is CapEx or investment required to update systems and change things to, to be able to facilitate um, the revenue gain that might be there? How long is a piece of string on that one? Um, it really depends on the size of the prize. But what we do know is that owned media is very, very profitable. So whilst the revenue that you can generate through owned media will never eclipse what you drive as your core business, um, you know, for an airline, for example, um, you're never going to earn more uh, from owned media than what you would through, um, you know, selling selling tickets on planes and that kind of thing. But it's extremely profitable. And the profit margins that we've seen in owned media are 80% plus. So it kind of makes the, the business case around investing into um, the tech, the people, makes sense. It really stacks up. I'm a bit, I'm a bit jealous, actually. If MI3 had 80% profit margins, um, I, I would be smiling really, really quite widely at the moment. But Maybe we should talk after this, Paul. <laughs> yes, maybe we, there could be something in that. Continue on, that, on what the biggest challenges are there, Angus. I went up a side creek. Yeah, so there's the operational side of things, um, but then there's also the what we've always done um, kind of attitude. And traditionally speaking, um, in a lot of, particularly in a lot of retail businesses, the merchandise teams hold a lot of the power. Um, and that's certainly true within owned media. And they've been using owned media as a way to essentially sweeten deals and get their suppliers over the line on, on um, trade deals and things. And so there's a lot of work that needs to happen in terms of um, rebalancing that and uh, changing the leadership around owned media and who controls it and how they're controlling it. So marketers, in a way, need to wrestle a bit of control of the own channels away from the merchandise team. We might come back to that one because that sounds really interesting. It can be, yep. <laughs> um, and I guess the other thing is, you know, a lot of marketers, I think, um, have a fear around uh, tattooing the baby, um, which is a, a term we use to... Yeah, do explain. Yeah. Um, well, tattooing the baby is really, um, you know, the idea of putting all these other brands onto your brand's media. So, right. uh, you know, if I've, if I've spent millions of dollars creating this beautiful web experience, why would I go and put on a whole bunch of other people's brands onto that? And it's a legitimate fear, um, but it's one that, you know, we absolutely uh, aim to, to mitigate and manage because it's not about being mercenary in this space and just trying to commercialize every little bit of real estate that you have. 
And we often talk about um, the, the sort of secret code to the whole game, really, which is three things that, that you have to do um, when it comes to owned media and creating really great owned media experiences. The first thing is that it has to um, improve the customer experience. It has to be relevant. It's got to um, have utility. It's got to be enjoyable. It's got to be something that actually makes the customer's experience better. The second thing is that um, as a media channel, it has to work for your partners, for your vendors, for your suppliers. Um, it has to have efficacy. It's got to be able to work for them as a communications vehicle. And then the third thing is it has to drive really profitable revenue for you as a business. And the thing is, you can't have two out of three. You've got to have all three and they need to be done in that order of priority. But if you get that right, and if you get those three things done properly, then you can uh, basically mitigate for all these fears and concerns around how own media is going to be leveraged. And so uh, after you work through that, um, you find people are then quite happy to tattoo their babies? <laughs> no, well, we don't, we don't advocate tattooing the baby. Tattooing the baby is where you are over-commercialising, where you're doing too much. Oh, so it's not the presence, it's not the presence of, of, of multiple brands, it's the presence of too many brands. Too many brands in too many places right. um, and you're diluting the, you know, the, the, you know, the core of that media channel uh, for your own business. Got it. Um, Jonathan, you, you know, on that, you, you still think there is, uh, well, both of you think there are, there are huge opportunities still, even though we talk about retail being quite advanced in this, there are still um, really big opportunities for e-commerce and retail for owned media. Where and why is that? Why is there still gaps, at least in the retail sector? Yeah, so what we're seeing is merchandise teams operating in quite a legacy old school fashion and, and kind of giving it away and not really understanding the true value of it. Giving what away though? What are they giving away? So it might be a gondola end, it might be a point of sale piece, it might be a screen um, showing, it might be a um, placement on email or on um, the website, a tile, all of these types of things they might be giving away in order to improve the terms of their um, trading deal. Ah, okay. Um, but what we're seeing now is um, at least um, if they value it properly, they can recognise that value properly in the deal. Because right. what we're seeing is it on average around 14% undervalued in terms of the media value that's being represented in the, in the extreme cases being given away completely. And we see differences within the business. So one department might be giving it away for free. Another department might be trying to sell that same spot or that same media space. Right. Um, different categories receiving different rates, um, different partners um, paying different levels. So there's, there's not a lot of sophistication because it's not their core business, as Angus was saying. So what we like to bring is a, is a level of media owner sophistication to these businesses so that the true value of owned media is being represented in deals and there's one universal point of truth across the business. So we see, we see a lot of old school things happening. So, they, you know, I'll charge you this for a page in our magazine, but, I, but I, even though the website version of that magazine is getting a bigger audience, that's just being given away for free. So things like that um, are quite commonplace. So there's a, value, there's a big valuation job to be done first before you even do anything else, understand what, what they've got in front of them, what, what the potential revenue is here. 
That's right. The size of the prize is often quite alarming. And we, on average, uncover about $48 million worth per business that we work with, on average, um, in untapped owned media revenue. Um, so people just don't, they think of the classic media um, channels, like it might be a magazine or a point of sale piece or the website, but things like um, logistic trucks, um, call centers, staff endorsement, organic um, reach on social, um, emails is one of the most valuable opted in channels that a business has. Um, and often partners' presence on those emails are just given away. You've valued all those just out of interest. Where do you get your benchmarks for, for valuation? Yep, so we've been doing this um, a long time now. Well, you don't look that old, both of you, actually. <laughs> well, maybe one of you, but I'm not going there. And we've managed to accumulate an $8 billion owned media, um, which covers around 2,500 cost per thousands across that, you know, oh. that wide variation of um, 200 plus owned media channels. As a result of that, we know what the benchmarks are by category, by format, by channel and so on. Just going back to um, what you're talking about between buying teams, merchandising teams and, say, marketing in a classic retail context, it sounds like there's, 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 there's turf wars still going on between the departments. Is, am, am, am I making something up there? Well, yes, you are, Paul. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't go so strong as turf wars, um, but there is, you know, there's healthy competition um, between getting the content mix right, which is the marketer's agenda, um, and allowing a commercial presence, which is the merchandise team's agenda. Um, and, you know, the, the middle ground is... Is, is like Angus was saying before, ensuring that the mix of content and commercial messaging adds value to your customer. Because if it's not doing that, then you're going to lose customers and then you've got nothing to leverage. So it's counterintuitive to go down that road. Um, so as long, as long as both teams are understanding the value of what they're dealing with, which is the critical component, because, you know, we, after we've done a valuation, you might hear a merchant team go, geez, I didn't realise I was giving away hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of media every time and, and the marketers go, oh, yeah, now, now we need to treat it with a bit more respect. And once you've, once you've put a dollar value on that internally within a business, then the dynamic changes. Angus, do you see behaviour change as a result of um, someone seeing the numbers and going, holy cow, there's actually some money here? Did the different departments suddenly change their behaviour or does it still require some time? Uh, it certainly changes attitudes and behaviour within an organisation at a very senior level because all of a sudden you're looking at these, um, you know, these channels that have essentially uh, are a sunk cost. They've had millions of dollars spent on building their websites and their in-store experiences and that sort of thing. And, you know, the lens we bring to it is to... Um, turn those channels into an asset by putting a dollar value around them. And when you view them as an asset, it suddenly makes things a little pointier. Um, and so we see a, a real attitude shift um, around owned media in that sense. And when you sit down with the marketing teams and explain the different ways in which they can start to leverage owned media, um, it's a pretty simple uh, conversation around how they can start to work with their merchandising teams um, to go in with, you know, solutions-focused um, opportunities for their suppliers. So rather than merch just going off and having a conversation um, about a trade deal, 
um, is where merchant marketing go hand in hand into see a supplier, talk about that supplier's communication objectives, talk about what they're trying to achieve, and then come back with a well-crafted, strategic, smart, owned media um, solution to that challenge. And there is gold in there, you know, not just from a commercial sense, but from a relationship perspective, you get better relationships with your suppliers. You should be then on the back of that, um, creating more relevant messaging for your customers. Um, and you're really seeing the full value of owned media coming out. I can see how it would work in a, in a classic retailing context. But, you know, in terms of that, what I call the turf wars, you guys say, you know, you're far more diplomatic. But, you know, how does that work in terms of a, a telco or a financial services or a bank? Because those, those sort of the way deals are done with between merchandising, buying teams and, and suppliers is a bit different classic retail to, say, telco and financial services, I imagine, but maybe I'm wrong. Probably in telco, I think it's probably more similar than perhaps what you'd think um, in terms of the way that the, you know, the, the category teams deal with the handset providers. It's, it's a very similar sort of scenario. Right. Within finance and, and loyalty, yes, it can be different because it's a different way of leveraging their owned media. Um, and it's oftentimes um, being used uh, to provide offers, you know, so a, um, a merchant partner has a really good offer that they want to put out to, um, say, card members um, and that the, the bank, the financial institution, can then use its owned media to connect that offer to, um, to the right people. So it's a, it is a different use case in that scenario um, and it's one that's led more from a marketing perspective. So there's less hurdles internally in terms of managing different stakeholders and teams and that kind of thing. Who runs these programs? There's a resource here. So so who actually drives the partnerships between between a, a, and uh, to Jonathan or, or Angus? How are they run? How are they resourced? Yeah, it generally um, originates in the marketing team, um, but the commercial teams are heavily involved as well um, and sometimes the product team. So in the, in the financial organisations that we work with around the world, um, you know, it's the merchant liaison team um, that are driving this. Yeah, and this is, this is the interesting bit, right, because you guys talk about direct revenue sources and indirect revenue sources and you just referenced Amex there. What is the difference and, and, and how, what, what does that mean for a brand or a company? So, yeah, so in a commercial sense, yes, you're right, there is um, direct versus indirect revenue. And, you know, the way we look at it is that indirect revenue is um, value that you generate through your negotiations in your broader deals. Um, and so it's about recognizing the value that um, a business is providing through its own media and making sure that that value is being met on the other side of the deal, be it in a um, in a cost, be it in support from the supplier and the brand themselves. But the important thing is that the value has been calculated, it's being shared, and that both parties understand and buy into it. So that's indirect, and that's more from a negotiation perspective. For Amex, what it does is it drives more offers better offers, better quality offers. So the uh, customer experience, the cardholder experience is improved and they're seeing all the transaction value come through. So on so many levels, it's a win-win for them. Give us an example uh, of how a direct scenario would work, 
angles for Jonathan. And, and I, for me, uh, being sort of slow and a little bit simple, the obvious one for me is when you see the back of a Kellogg's pack, right? And you might see um, some of the, and another brand that's got nothing to do with Kellogg, Kellogg uh, on there. That's the sort of stuff where you're talking direct, or am I messing it up for you? Yeah, that's a good example. Kellogg's um, may or may not charge for that, depending on brand fit. Um, the supermarkets, um, the department stores, you know, when you're seeing those screens in store, when you're seeing banners um, on a carousel, on a website, generally that would have been paid for in some fashion. Um, but even within businesses, you get a mix of indirect and direct happening all the time. So it's quite nuanced and not as black and white as we do direct or we do indirect. What's growing faster? Probably direct, given the explosion of retail media in the States and we're catching up here in Australia as well. But yeah, retail media, they're realising the cash money that's on the table and that's available and the sophistication and the fact that they own the customers, they own the data. Um, and the technology now available nowadays allows them to serve relevant messages to relevant customers um, that drive purchases. So it's a, it's a pretty strong model. COVID, you, you mentioned before, COVID accelera- accelerated all this, particularly in a digital context then, I imagine. Is, it, is this surprising or unexpected wins or gains that, that companies that, are, that you're already working with are seeing or those that um, can exploit that that are not doing it at the moment? You know, what we've seen out of the back of the pandemic has been um, real growth uh, in the value of direct channels and digital channels. Not at all surprising when you think about um, lockdowns and what we've all been through. Um, But the value of email, the value of web, um, e-commerce has all grown significantly um, since then. And I think it's really just shone a light on those channels and the importance of them both from a core business perspective but also in those channels ability to gather an audience communicate with an audience and drive value in other ways are they tapping it yeah sorry jonathan i was just going to say i think there's a couple of factors the businesses that have done well out of the pandemic so the the e-commerce businesses and the grocery businesses have got spare money now to invest in ramping this Um, area up, which is non-core to their business. And the businesses that have struggled through COVID and the pandemic um, are looking for alternative revenue streams. So it kind of works with both. Um, And and we've seen growth there. And then everyone is looking for more effective campaigns. And that's what owned media offers because of that proximity to the point of purchase. Are they able to, do they need different infrastructure though if there's a big uh, e-com online boom? Do they need new stuff to, need new tools and new kit to make this work? Uh, Not a huge investment. Um, Most have the first party data already established. Um, It's a matter of linking that up to um, partner campaigns. Um, The owned media ecosystem is already established. Um, They have content management systems already in place. Um, in, in many cases, ad servers, um, distributing that content through their, their ecosystem, either for their own purposes or just for product ranging. Um, so a lot of, in, a, in the majority of cases, that investment's already been made. Offshore, you, apart from Amex, uh, you know, you're doing some other stuff because it's, it's interesting that you're an Australian firm that's sort of getting some traction offshore. Yes, we are. We're working in those categories in Europe as well as the States um, and across APAC. 
can't reveal all the all the names because of confidentiality. But I'm just sliding a direct revenue source across the table now, Jonathan. Who might that for ten bucks? Who are they? They're um, high profile leading businesses who are recognising the value of own media. Is it different though? Nice, nice sidestep, tap dance, beautiful, well done, um, Jonathan, for for politics. But is the mindset different in say APAC to Europe to Australia? Is it is it different? conversations and, and, and uh, potential? One of the things we picked up is uh, America being more commercially minded and more advanced in this space than, say, the UK. Um, and I think that trend's played out with the Roundell's target. Our target uh, thing, yeah. Walmart um, and now CVS and some of the pharmacy brands getting involved in that, in that sophisticated um, e-com owned media leverage platforms. So I'd say the, the US are more commercially minded in this space and are more aggressive going after it, um, but Europe's not far behind. A question without notice to both of you is, out of all the brands that you've worked for so far, which one has had the biggest uh, valuation? You don't have to tell me who, but just the number, like so with all the range. So who's had who's got the biggest media asset valuation? The biggest valuation we've done was over half a billion dollars. Really? And that's an annual media asset value. And of course, you're not going to be able to commercialize or monetize all of that at all. Um, the commercial potential from that asset value is always going to be a derivative of, of that um, media asset value and you know the the exact amount that you can commercialize will will differ it'll differ in terms of the guardrails you set in terms of how much of your media inventory you're willing to allow other brands to use what's the range though is it 25 to 50 percent of a, of a valuation number yeah i mean that's a pretty pretty good range and depending on the category that you're operating in depending on the um sort of level of supplier or partner demand that you would have but yeah you can be expecting that kind of level of commercial potential yeah really interesting stuff to wrap this up from both of you what does the next 12 months look like and sort of media assets brand owned media assets what are we going to see where is the biggest bit of action going to happen all the all the momentum angus to you first what we're going to see is huge growth particularly in retail media and i think we're already starting to see that we're certainly seeing it that's biting right that's really biting in the market now in, in this market it's huge yeah big time and and as it should it's um so it's getting so sophisticated now the capabilities um, that are coming through are actually leaving a lot of traditional media owners flat-footed um, and so I think we're going to see a lot more growth in that space and I think we'll also see a lot of growth in loyalty and how essentially businesses will start to trade on their uh, really strong customer relationships to create these powerful media channels um, because you know what we're what we're aiming to do, and what I think a lot of businesses are looking to do, is to essentially transform the intangibles like brand strength and customer relationships into growth and into revenue and opportunity. So I think we'll see um, a lot of growth around loyalty in addition to the retail media, and I think we'll see brands and and, and marketers looking for a lot more. Uh, efficacy in their media. They're going to be looking for a lot more proof and case studies around how media can drive a commercial result. And again, that's where owned media really comes to the fore. I just got one little supplementary question there for you, Angus, which is when you talked about the loyalty programs and th there's some action happening there, 
there's been lots of partnerships and alliances with loyalty programs. Um, I think Qantas for you know for, for a long time. So what, why is it different uh, in a in a in a bundle called owned media when they've been doing it before? Is the difference is more sophistication and understanding of the the, the value? This is the difference, or you know, is there new e- executions in the, on what we're going to see? Yeah, I think it'll be a combination of. I think uh, we've we talked about the importance of these direct channels. Um, now and I think that's only going to grow. So these organisations are sitting on these incredibly powerful media channels and in our experience um, they are, um, even even when they have a rate card, even when they have been trading their, their media, they're often undervalued because um, there's never really been a model or a, a methodology for valuing owned media um, and that's you know that was the first thing we did as a business when we set up was to create the methodology and the model for um, accurately valuing owned media channels. Um, so I think we'll see the organisations um, reassert value for the channels that they have. Um, they'll be bringing out new tech. Um, and the game is really going to be played on the data front, and that's no news to anyone. Everyone in media understands that data is is really driving a lot of the, the changes and the growth, and that's absolutely the case with own channels as well. Jonathan, before I get to your sort of your, your crystal ball predictions for the next twelve months, probably not so crystal ball is where's the money coming from? So when the money comes into into owned media channels, it's coming from somewhere. Where? Yeah. So that's that is. One of the future trends that we're seeing as well, which is this, historically, um, the money's come from trade budgets. So vendors um, giving their trade money to um, the retailer or to the the, uh, the business owner. Um, and that that's going to cap out at some stage. And that's the mistake that a lot of businesses make is that they think, oh, we've, we've capped out of trade money. There's nothing left. Um, but we've found that there always is. But the big shift that I wanted to mention was this um, encroachment and conflation of brand brand budget and trade budget. So they're starting to merge. So marketers and trade marketers in businesses are starting to sit in the same room and think, hang on a minute, this own media is actually performing really well for us. It can do a pass-to-purchase job. In some instances, it does a brand job if it's outward-facing um, beyond the business um, into the public eye as well. Um, and therefore, there's a lot of growth to be had for owned media um, from brand budgets as well, mm. um, which has big implications for media agencies. Um, and we've seen Cartology set up a agency team that services that, but they're also talking you know, brand budgets as well. Mm. So direct. And so, dealing, I was going to say they're dealing direct with, direct. with brands yeah, as well, right? Well, and, and, and so are other owned media, media businesses, yes. So, so that's one of the, the shifts is that some of the traditional media money will move into um, owned media. So that's, one of, that's a, a good prediction for the next 12 months and, and, and I hear it's happening you know, very much. Everything you just talked about is really happening now, particularly in around that cartology, Woolworths, Coles, whatever what, what those, those retailers are doing. There's one, uh, give me one more before we, we wrap up in terms of the next 12 months, big things to watch for. Well, I just think there's going to be a big improvement and focus on owned media channels um, as a result of this um, cultural and um, landscape shifts um, and first party data as well. 
becoming mm. becoming an issue with cookies being cut off. Um, so the quality and the um, focus on things like emails, on apps, on their own websites right. is going to change rather than being lumped together as, oh, yeah, we'll just run our ads through our own channels in that, that whole transmedia approach. Mm. Actually um, thinking... Um, in distinct fashion and a focused fashion about your website. Okay, who's coming there? What do they want to see? Emails, who's getting that? How can we segment? How many times do they want to get messages from us, from partners? Asking them those questions, using your first-party data a lot more smartly um, for your own communication as well as of that with partners for commercial reasons. Good stuff. Well, um, I think we'll... we'll um have to loop back around and see what happens in 12 months' time and hold you to your predictions. But it all sounds pretty much on trend. Um, and I will buy you a coffee, both of you, um, at some stage in the next week so that I can work out how I don't tattoo the MI3 baby, but we can get our margins up. Jonathan Hopkins, Angus Fraser, thanks for joining. Good conversation. And um, let's just track this thing for the next 12 months. Media companies, we didn't have a big conversation there. Maybe that's next time. Thanks for joining. Thank you. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.